This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Martin Doblemeyer, president and founder of Journey Films. Since 1984, he has produced and directed more than 30 films focused on religion, faith, and spirituality. They explore how belief can lead individuals to extraordinary acts, how spirituality creates and sustains communities, and how faith is lived in remarkable ways. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Martin discuss his most recent documentary film titled Sabbath, which explores the history of one of the world's most spiritual practices and its timeless relevance for a stressed out modern world. I do see myself as somebody who's deeply concerned about the big issues of life and how God is active every single moment in this world and how people respond to that. And I learn from the people that I engage with about how they respond to it. And I hope in some ways my connectedness to them and my communication of how they respond to God adds something to this conversation. We're in conversation with God and God is in conversation with us. And as long as we keep our eye on the ball, we'll be okay. This is Living the Call. Martin Doblemeyer, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, we had a we had a, a you know an auspicious uh, initial meeting because I I happen to participate in a, a documentary film, which even though I usually don't date the shows, uh, nevertheless I will mention that it came out on June first of twenty twenty three, which is a mere mere days ago. In fact, I've only seen the first episode of it to tell you because I've been traveling this week. But uh, that's how we met, and uh, it was a privilege to be a part of that documentary, and now a further privilege to have you on the show. Well, you did a wonderful job. I mean, I do a lot of research before I start any one of these films. I'm always asking, who are some of the most articulate, intelligent, gifted voices who can help round out these particular stories? And as you know, I came to Southern California to do a particular story on Our Lady Queen of Angels, the La Placita Church uh, in downtown Los Angeles. But in order to round that story out, we wanted to sort of invite a couple of, of smart people to step up and talk a little bit about what congregation gathering, what Sabbath means uh, to Hispanic Catholics in particular. And your name came up several times, Deacon Charlie, so uh, you were a must cool. on our list. Well, it's a, a pleasure and a privilege. I'm just happy, Martin, that the Archdiocese has nice things to say about me, right? I mean, because that's where the that's where the referral came from. I was and like, they even oh, okay. know you, and they still had nice uh, things to say about you. They even know me. Well, you know, it's funny because we joke a little bit, but there are, um, I think, about 500 deacons uh, in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. There's about a thousand priests, so. 1,500 or so total clerics to serve about three and a half million Catholics here. And so when I think of Archbishop Gomez, who happened to ordain me, and the, the, the responsibility that he has to sort of understand that team and know that team, it's not surprising to me that there's a lot of clerics that he just not that doesn't know that well. So, um, so it, you know, it is, it is nice to, um, to be regarded in that way. In, related to this, and because you mentioned that you do a lot of research before you uh, bring people into these documentary projects— have you come across a situation where you've done that research, maybe you've had preliminary conversations with people, and yet when you sit them down to actually begin the work, something is 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 wrong? In other words, they're not living up to the what the research proposes? Has that ever happened? Oh, it, of course. And it goes both ways. There are times when you... Um when you think, well, I've done the research and this person could be a candidate. I have low expectations and they blow your mind how good they are. Mm. And there are other times when uh, you know that this person is credentialed, respected, 
and you sit down and talk to them, it just kind of doesn't work. Uh, mm. It's hard to hard to say. It's hard to predict sometimes, although that's part of what is supposed to be my skill, my ability to be able to predict what's actually going to happen when the camera rolls. But it's it is uh, it it does surprise you sometimes, and and I, I think some of that has to do with you know being on on television, being uh, with the you know you come in with the lights and the cameras and everything, and we try to be as as lacking and you know lacking of drama as possible. We try to do this with low drama, uh, and yet at the same time, people sometimes get nervous and they don't they just don't deliver. But but by and large, I have to say for our track record, it's uh, it's we think it's pretty good that we can identify people who we think will do a really good job because they're experienced and comfortable. And it's my job, it's really my job as the interviewer. Uh, to come in knowing my subject matter, knowing them, and then doing my best to get from them the best possible material. There is this m- sort of moment, I've noticed it even in the production of this show, um, and perhaps there's a word for this so you can educate me, but there's this moment where a subject knows that a camera is rolling, where in some cases, not all, but in some cases, something changes. It's... the just the realization that a person is being uh, filmed. It might it might actually be easier in sort of acting context where somebody is pretending to be somebody else. But in 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 moments, you as a filmmaker, yes, but as a documentarian also, you must see this more than than most in the sense that when we're talking about who we are and we're giving our opinion on something, the subject is being themselves. That there's this weird thing that happens when a camera comes into the picture. That, that things slightly change. In my own show, I've experimented with having cameras when we're here in the studio and we'll have a camera on. And, it, you know, this was in the initial part of the show. I stopped doing it because I, something happened and people started either wanting to address the camera or I, I don't know what it was, but it was a different thing than what I was looking for in terms of a really natural conversation. Is there, is there a name for that? And have you seen that? Well, I think it's just human response to the fact that the cameras can be incredibly intimidating. I mean, and different people respond to it differently. Sometimes, you know, uh, I, I see people, the lights go on and something inside of them just comes out flying. They, mm. they love it. Mm. Um, mm. It's the difference between being that, you know, it will reveal something about your personality ultimately. And other people are really able to compartmentalize it. They simply say, you know, I have something to say, whether your camera's rolling or not, I'm going to say it. And, and they do. And, and I, and I, it just, it, in many ways, it just becomes a measure of personality and Mm. you can sort of sense this, that you and I had a good conversation. I remember clearly before those cameras roll, you and I sat together in that room and we talked a little bit about the content, the subject area. You helped me uh, make sure that I was defining my questions uh, and help guide me as I was going to be sitting down and preparing to do the interview. So that's part of my job is I have to come in prepared. And my job also too is to make people feel relaxed. Uh, and by, by and large, there's lots of occasions uh, that we would sit down with people. They're nervous at first. And I can even look at the, the track record, the transcript of the interview, and see it wasn't so good for the first five or 10 minutes. But then after about 10 minutes, everybody sort of eased in, got comfortable. And the, the sound bites and the quotations and the, and the comments that they offered were so much better afterwards. And so it's it's just a process. It's It's unusual. A lot of people that we we deal with don't have a lot of experience in being in front of a camera. It's a bit new. It's a little daunting. Uh, but um, part of my job is to make them feel at ease. And that's, I've been doing it for a long time. I can 
I can basically get a sense whether or not somebody's going to feel comfortable or not. So, I was thinking about it as I was watch, watching the first episode for, for, for what we're talking about is the documentary film Sabbath, which is available as of this recording uh, nationwide on PBS. In fact, I watched it on the PBS pap, uh, Passport app uh, last night. It's also available on journeyfilms.com, which is uh, your uh, production company, Martin. But I was thinking about this dynamic yesterday when I watched the first episode, there are uh, an assortment of people, uh, you know, academics, um, pastors, uh, clerics, uh, you know, people involved in organizations. And I was thinking about all of the things you and I went through before getting to film, the calls, the prep, the back and forth on email, and you having to do that with all these folks. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a, it's, a, it's an enormous undertaking to make a film. Yeah, I mean, it's a process of usually between 18 months and two years um, between wow. the research and the thinking about it. So you stay hyper-focused for that period of time on the subject matter. And yes, we you were very gracious. You responded to my emails and my my questions, queries. Of course. You were very gracious, and I, I appreciated that. But, you know, the bottom line is I've been doing this now for almost 40 years, and I still love doing it. I was still excited about coming out to Southern California. We're in Alexandria, Virginia. And I was excited about being back out in Southern California, experiencing what I had heard about at La Placida, uh, meeting you and the other people who were in that in that chapter of our film. And then it's my job. I feel in some ways that this work is a sacred trust. Um, mm. You've given me hours of your time. They've given us days and days and days of their time to come in and film and literally trusted their story to me. And I feel that, that there's something sacred about that. I mean, they're trying to understand how God is alive and well and working in that particular part of Los Angeles. You're interested in how God is alive and well and working in the meekin of the, di the diaconate. And my job is to put all that together into a coherent story that's going to hold together well and that they will be proud of. And that's ultimately the most important thing. I, I was told, you, I, I, one mm -hmm. of the chapters in the film is about the uh, Benedictine order up at St. Saint, uh, Saint Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. And I'll tell you, Deacon Charlie, they, they had told me in advance you know, we know your work, Martin, and we like what you do, but we have had other documentary filmmakers up here in the past, and they didn't leave a good, uh, they didn't leave a good impression. And so we're talking about it as a brotherhood as to whether or not we want to invite you to come up and do this. But in the end, they did. They invited us to spend a week at St. Joseph's Abbey in uh, Western Massachusetts, and and we filmed them. Uh, and they couldn't have been more cooperative. And just the other day. Uh, the, the brother who has actually been my liaison with the community wrote back and said, we got together as a community, watched the whole film, and can't thank you enough for letting us be part of this film. Our chapter is fabulous. We're really grateful that we had the time to spend together with you. So that it's, feels it's really beautiful. good uh, because, I, again, I feel as though they trusted me with their story and their relationship with God, and the, they felt comfortable about the depiction that we were able to bring to that. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful uh, uh, chapter in uh, in the first episode. I know that there's subsequent um, scenes involving that Trappist community. They, they follow the rule of Saint Benedict, I, I'm, I'm sure, but they're also, you know, for those folks who don't know, they're they're among the more um, uh, sort of austere, you know, chapters of monasticism. And so I can imagine the disruption of documentary, you know, sets and crews and things like that. And perhaps they had a a similar experience, but no, this was done actually very beautifully. Martin, for, for people who may not know who you are, I mean, obviously you are a super accomplished, um, you know, filmmaker and, and a documentarian and, you know, you've, you've 
you know, had the, the privilege, I'm sure, to sit with people from Martin Sheen to Mother Teresa and Billy Graham to Jesse Jackson. I mean, a, a huge uh, array of, of very interesting people. But you've centered your creative ability in this notion of understanding religion, faith, spirituality, and the role that God plays in the world. That's a, it's a unique kind of vantage point. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about how that's come about, how that came about, that that was your area that you principally wanted to focus on. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, your, your podcast is called Living the Call. I think that's what I try to do every day. I think as I look back on my own life and I, I try not to spend much time thinking about it, I spend most of my time thinking about the next film. But I had this sense, even back in high school and in college, that I would do something around the notion of religion, faith, and spirituality, and how God is alive and well and working in the world. So I don't really think of myself first and foremostly as a filmmaker. I don't really fit in that well with the filmmaking community. Um, I don't do all that well when I go out to Sundance and hang out with all the filmmakers (laughs) in Sundance. I, I just don't play well with them. Uh, But I do see myself as somebody who's deeply concerned about the big issues of life and how God is active every single moment in this world and how people respond to that. And I learn from the people that I engage with about how they respond to it. And I hope in some ways my connectedness to them and my communication of how they respond to God adds something to this conversation. We're, We're in conversation with God and God is in conversation with us. And as long as we keep our eye on the ball, um, we'll, we'll be okay. But this has always been there. I've always seen it as being part of it. I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdotal story. My wife, is uh, she, she teaches at a number of different universities. She teaches business and technology. Hmm. So when we go into a bookstore, which are getting fewer and fewer, more and more mm-hmm. rare in this country to find a good bookstore, we walk into the bookstore holding hands. She goes off to business and technology. I go off to religion, history, philosophy, and we meet at the cash register, and whoever has the most books pays. And that's the way we've been doing it for all these years. But that's kind of how we think about this. This is kind of the world that I enjoy, uh, and I'm looking for ideas at all time. I'm, I'm still trying to stay as much as I can in this game, and, and I love it. Mm. Is part of the reason that you don't play well with the, you know, kind of, I guess, traditional, if you can use that word, filmmaking or document documentary filmmaking community is part of it just the subject matter in other words I, I mean I can relate to the idea of not playing well because I spent my career in the entertainment industry and by and large people who have a faith walk like the one I have will generally find um, some of those spaces difficult to to exist in at the fullness of their being. Um, and at some point I had to just make the decision that I wanted to live an integrated life. So it meant that there were places that I probably just wasn't going to thrive in, but as part of that, not playing, you know, not sort of gelling with that, with those groups at Sundance and Telluride and all those different places is part of it just that. Well, uh, you know, now that you and I have connected as a result of you being part of this, uh, film on Sabbath, I did, you know, I've done some background on you and you have a really interesting background yourself, Deacon Charlie. I mean, you, you know, you studied, formally studied film and television production. That's, you live in Hollywood, California and have for a long period of time. And you're a Catholic deacon, a permanent deacon. So you, you, you're pretty clearly carving a path that's unique on your own. Uh, I'm not sure how well you would do it if you went to hang out at, at Sunday yeah. either, because it's just a, a, generally it's, you know, I, you know, there's plenty of wonderful people who go there, but I'm just saying that 
yeah. kinds of efforts that they're putting into and the energy that they're putting out into telling the kind of films it just doesn't necessarily particularly always resonate with me. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I find myself much more comfortable and people want to sit around and talk about religion, faith, and spirituality than than horror movies and things like that. It's just it's just me. So and uh, then, I've and had also the, too, I think mm-hmm. that um, you know, they're looking to tell good stories. Uh, but I think religion is kind of out these days. I've been at this work long enough to have seen an arc happen. When I began 40 years ago, religion, the expression of faith, was just an accepted part of the American culture. Even in television, there were carved out hours during Sunday in particular that said, we understand religion is important to the American people. We're going to make sure there's, there's availability to tell stories about religion, faith, and spirituality on your television dial every Sunday. That's not the case anymore. Uh, and I, uh, we have to fight for every hour of television that we can get, the opportunity to get an audience. And, and I think that's reflected in the kind of other films that are being done out there. It's, 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 it's a tough climate today to do films about religion, faith, and spirituality. I don't see it getting any better in the ne- immediate near future, but I think that could change on a distant horizon. Okay. Well, you've hit on a huge, uh, you know, vein of potential uh, discussion here, Martin, because a couple things. One of the things in our last conversation that we had that I thought that you said that was really interesting was the, the idea that you just described, which is the fact that faith had a sort of space in the past, the broadcasters and others in the media business allocated essentially slots in their programming schedule for this kind of thing. And that there's been a complete erosion of that, um, of religiosity or things of faith having their own slot, as it were, in the programming grid. I think a lot of people don't even realize that that's the truth because increasingly audiences are brought up in a world that's much more on demand. And so if they want to watch something, they self-select, they go and they if the, you know, the idea of binging and, you know, all this other stuff has come from that dynamic where I can watch whatever I want to watch. And so the idea that there was actual programming and we sat there and watched in a linear fashion and that there was a carve out for faith is something that many, many, many people just simply do not know was the case uh, uh, back then. And it, and it is true. I think it's, it's, it's a very sad thing, frankly, that that sort of space does not exist. So that's one thing that I think is really true and interesting. The other one, which you just touched on, is where are we right now in the sense of this, the appetite for this kind of thing? And I would agree with you that, in general, that's sort of gone down. But I think I put that on for two reasons. One is that a lot of this sort of natural desire that we have for a connection with the supernatural and with the transcendent has been in some cases replaced with things like, you know, wellness or, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, mental health and things like that, which are very poor kind of proxies for this desire. And then the other one is a lot of uh, faith-based content, not yours, clearly, but a lot of it is pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. Like we have sometimes the best stories history, faith, you know, philosophy, religion, but we, but the, the, the craft has not been there. Uh, well, there's a, yeah, those, those are good points. They are. And there's a lot of different elements that go into this, um, this movement in the last say generation and a half away from the allocation of time for programming on religion, faith, and spirituality. Some of it is pure economics. Uh, I don't want to necessarily say that the networks are, these are all heathen people and they're trying to squeeze God out of it. I mean, I'll accept the fact that, by and large, their basis is economics. Prove to me that these kinds of television programs get a large enough audience, and I'll 
I'll set aside everything else. So there's there's the economic reality of it, first of all. And then that sort of harkens back to the point that you made, which I think, by and large, not a lot of creative attention is given to programming centered on religion, faith, and spirituality. There are certainly, you know, different occasions when that happens. But by and large, that real creative energy is not going in that direction. And therefore, I don't think there's a a real large body of work Mm. that centers around that topic. And therefore, it sort of erodes the possibility that it's going to have a a, a position, a stable, ongoing position on anybody's television network. You know, these these systems, the streaming systems like um, Netflix and things like that, they're all self-selective, like you said. So uh, believe me, they're tracking everything. And so if people are going to those networks, they're looking for good stories that touch on religion, faith, and spirituality. They see that they're getting a good audience. They're hearing good things. They're winning awards. Believe me, the networks would respond by investing more money into it. So we've been with public television now for the last uh, you know, 30 years, and they've been great uh, and, mm. uh, and have been, uh, you know, good enough and confident in themselves enough to say to me as a filmmaker, I can make what I feel like I should be making and bring it to us first and let that, let, let us show your films. And that's been home for our films at journey films now for, for all these years. And we, we see that relationship continuing. It's also not just in, in my view, um, not just a question of, um, you know, the qualitative piece is not just a question of the visual aesthetic, but it's also a question of the narrative value of a lot of this work that's done. Because there's been, in some cases, like everybody uses similar cameras and similar microphones. And so on some level, qualitatively, the the way that the world has worked has made it more accessible for people with less to look to make something that looks better. Even an iPhone can make a basically Hollywood movie at this point, or so they claim. But it, But that question of narrative has has you know not been as sharp in my view of how you tell these stories in the in in sabbath in the documentary that we we just talked about and you've done many many documentaries on on a bunch of different things we'll we'll include in our show notes your filmography but in sabbath that's what i noticed too and good you know good filmmakers good good narrative developers will take you know bits and pieces of the collective uh, you know work that they're capturing and create a story across that arc. And I think in the, particularly there, so writers, uh, you know, the, n- n- people who are involved in narrative, I think that part has been, you know, lacking by and large. We uh, There's been some rays of hope. I think, you know, you had Bishop Robert Barron on Sabbath. He was one of the contributors to this. What he di- What he's done with Word on Fire is an example, hitting on that sort of principle of let's do something beautiful. But beauty, as in both visually, but also story, audio, crafting, he's done some things there. The Chosen, which is, you know, blown up all over the world, you know, Hollywood has begun now to sort of pay attention and say, well, what is this? But it's principally because of the writing, Martin. I mean, it's well-written. That's the thing. You get backstories on the characters, and there's tension, and there's cliffhangers, and all the same stuff from the secular world that a lot of religious content, in my view, is just not necessarily lived up to. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, the word I like to use is drama. Uh, mm. It becomes uh, a real, the, the part of writing scripts that work well for television are those people who can bring drama, natural drama to the subject matter. I happen to believe that in religion, faith, the expressions of religion, and let's just say rather than religion, which ha- people sometimes can have a negative, yeah. you know, 
the expression of a person's faith, the deepest notions of what's going on inside of them, there's, there can be sometimes just incredible drama. And uh, it, as long as it can continue to attract people with the craft of writing and storytelling and narrative drive, uh, I think it'll be okay. But, but by and large, those people have not felt comfortable coming into that world. Uh, they've not been able to respond with you know, the amount of economic support that they needed to continue to do them. Uh, the good writers will want, want good money. And uh, I think the more and more successful films go out there that have a, have a spiritual drive to them, the more those mm. people will be attracted to go into that world. And, and it'll only get better. It'll only continue to get better. You've um, done films on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on Reinhold Niebuhr, on Howard Thurman, on on Dorothy Day, one of my one of my favorites. Um, what was the impetus about, with Sabbath? It's almost like you started narrow, right? We're going to talk about some personages specifically, and I, and I, you've done some other broader stuff, like the you know the Byzantine community and all of that. But you started, generally speaking, like with these pr- sort of profiles of personages and people. But now you're sort of, my sense is you've sort of zoomed out and are looking at this huge concept of Sabbath. How, how did that yeah. come to you? It, it is. You're right. It's a huge concept. And even in two hours, I think we left a lot on the table and we're still talking about that. But um, I had been in, in a phase for the last number of years that I was doing biographies. And frankly, one led to the, to the next. There was a natural intersection connectedness between Bonhoeffer and Niebuhr, Reinhold Niebuhr, a natural connection with um, Howard Thurman that we had done one of the profiles on, Dorothy Day, Abraham Joshua Heschel. So those are the five people that we, we have, when, when we finished the individual films, put them together as a single collection that I called Prophetic Voices. These mm. were remarkable voices in a very chaotic century, the 20th century, uh, marked by uh, the disappointment of what ca- human beings were capable of doing, and, and at the same time, the hope of what could be a different world for us. I remember in the 50s and 60s how excited people were about new possibilities, and these people, Thurman and Dorothy Day, Abraham Heschel, they were all not only there and present, but actually people who were making a difference in that those times. So I had done these biographies and, and felt very connected to these characters. They, they meant something to me personally, and hopefully we were able to tell their stories in a way that actually connects to the audience. And they were very successful. Each one of those films uh, became, at, at some point, a top 10 film on Amazon. And so there was response mm. to each one of them, and we put them together as a collection. But then, you know, frankly, from an artistic point of view, I thought, you know, I'd like to take a little break from doing biographies right now. Let's, let's do something else. Let's try a different uh, storyline, story arc. What are the things that we're looking for? And as a filmmaker in the world of public television, I have to be able to walk in and convince the administrators there that this film that I'm interested in doing will be able to reach a broad audience. And mm. so I began asking, what are some of the things that we all as humanity share in common, whether you're religious or not? What do you share in common? And one of the things that came up again and again, we're all feeling exhausted. We're feeling burned out. We're feeling isolated. Uh, so now the whole notion of Sabbath began to percolate. Having done the film on Abraham Joshua Heschel, who wrote what I think is a defining book on the topic of Sabbath, having reread that for that film, it just continued to sort of pump into my mind the idea that we could actually do a film on Sabbath and that there would be wide interest in it. So that's how it came about. Uh, But I would never never recommend doing this kind of film during a pandemic to anybody. 
because we found ourselves in places constantly trying to navigate the the complications and the limitations because we were filming Sabbath during a pandemic. Tail end of it, but still in the midst of the pandemic. And that was not easy, but uh, but we f- we feel proud of what we were able to create and and the film that we were able to get released. But it, it started from the, the place of having read Abraham Heschel, amplified by the notion that it's a concept that we all feel, which is that sense of burnout. We, we've experienced now something, uh, Deacon Shirley. Uh, you were the one in the film that talks about how it had never happened before. Closing of all Catholic churches, never. That's a first. Uh, we're feeling that. We're still reverberating from that. We're still trying to rebuild from the damage. And I think in some ways, Sabbath plays into all of that, or at least puts a, a light on it and says, look, we have to really think about this and think about it differently. Despite how learned or well-read you were on the Sabbath uh, concept or idea, did you learn anything from this process about Sabbath? Yeah, well, I, I, uh, yes, of course. You learn something from all these, uh, all, all these subject matters bring us into new areas that I really wasn't. You know, I, I, I hadn't read the papal document, the papal letter uh, John Paul II in uh, 1998 writes Deus Domini and talks about the fact that we as Catholics, he would say, we have to get back onto the onto the notion of that Sabbath is meant for us. Um, mm. So I had not had the documents in my own mind that justified doing a chapter or a couple of chapters of the story uh, out of, on the Catholic storyline. Certainly Jews, Seventh-day Adventists I knew about very clearly, uh, but I really wanted to bring the Catholic storyline into it, and that became a document that became... Part of the part of the back of my mind. I love the history chapter. Uh, it's one of my favorite chapters in the two hours. We talk about how, you know, the the Puritans come to the, uh, the new world, and we're all hearing about religious intolerance in back in Europe at the time. But one of the reasons why they come to the new world is because they wanted to practice the Sabbath in the ways that they feel as though, felt as though God was calling them to practice Him. So Sabbath, right from the very landing in this country, becomes a central theme. And then we raise the question as to how Sabbath becomes so important in um, in African, for enslaved people in this country. Mm. And that, to me, you know, we brought in a number of people to help us mature and uh, bring that story to light. But to the idea that for centuries, enslaved people in this country saw Sabbath as their opportunity to feel free, at least for that moment. It was a chance to gather together, to feel connected uh, to the Hebrews, to the, to the Jews who had, uh, you know, left exile, left left slavery on their own, traveled across the desert and found hope. And all mm. those connections came for them on Sabbath. And even, even in a, a more modern time, the, the Jim Crow laws that kept segregation at such a high level, Sabbath was the moment when people, African-American people found a sense of vindication and pride. Go to church on Sunday uh, and in the African-American community, and you see people who come with a purpose. They come, they come dressed. This is a moment of dignity. This is a special moment. So Sabbath had a totally different character and color for them as people as they're responding to the, the, the whole notion of Sabbath. So these are all, 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 all not just learning experiences. I knew that. I've done film on, on slavery in America in the past. But to connect Sabbath, and the slave, the enslavement experience, I thought was a really, really uh, emotional point for me in the process of making the film. One of the most successful things about this film, in my mind, is the promise that's made at the outset to people who are going to sit down to watch um, this documentary, 
which, you know, honestly, I hadn't thought about in the way that you framed it, which is this idea, the tension between the exhaustion that exists collectively among certainly our country, but I would go farther and wider than that. This exhaustion, this feeling of completely being depleted on a constant basis, uh, you know, barraged by millions of screens and emails and inputs and the Sabbath as this sort of moment of exhale of, of rest, which of course it is among many other things, that tension between those two things. And consequently the promise that's made to the audience that somehow the film will help me unlock what the answer is to the exhaustion I naturally feel is really smart. Because I think many people, which presumably is your objective, although you can tell me if I'm wrong, many people who are not people of faith, who maybe don't have a concept of the idea of the Sabbath from a religious perspective or from a familial perspective, can look at that idea of being exhausted and go, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's me. And this thing, Sabbath, somehow is a you know bomb against that feeling. That's strong. That's a really important you know driver to get people to understand what this could mean on a practical level. Yes, and that to uh, realize that you're not the first generation to do to think like this. And that's why Sabbath has survived for literally thousands of years. And it was interesting too, you asked about some of the things that we learned. One of them was that a lot of non-religious people mm. are practicing what they want to call a tech Sabbath, technology Sabbath. They're putting they're they're on on their own initiative. They're saying part of what is exhausting me is that I'm on guard, I'm on call 24-7, texts and laptops and computers, it's just, and now they're deciding on their own, the 24-hour period, a lot of them religiously from sunset to sunset, are putting down the phones, putting down their laptops, and they think what they call a tech Sabbath. And what's interesting is that they may say, oh, we are, we, we're not religious, we want to do this anyway, and yet they call it a tech Sabbath. They don't call it a tech day off. Because they understand <laughs> right. that it links directly to a tradition that's already well ahead of them, already well established, but they want to buy into that notion. And I think that's part of it. But also, too, you know, tech is, is so that's what makes, that makes the idea of Sabbath as contemporary as you can imagine. Uh, but also, too, I think what, what part of the exhaustion is we have exhausted the earth that we live on. We have exhausted mm. it. We have exploited mm. it and exhausted it. You know, the, the papal documents, uh, uh, Laudate Si, is, is talking about the whole notion of how we have a relationship with this earth that God has given us. And the, and the Sabbath is the end of the creation story. God mm. made the earth. God created the mm. animals and human beings that walked the earth and then rested. So there's a, an immediate and direct connection, I think, for those who want to honor the Sabbath and those who see that we have to rethink and reframe our relationship to the very earth that we share together. Yeah, that's powerful. I think even if those people who call it technology Sabbath were to change it and say a technology fast, which I've also heard, even then they would be alluding to something of religiosity <laughs> by calling it a fast. Yeah. yeah the, 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 um, you reminded me just now with the, you know, the question about the you know, depleting of our natural resources, the earth itself, of the words of St. Paul when he talks about the whole of creation groaning, right? There is an interconnectedness by divine will through God's providence, to have an interconnectedness between the entire created order. And so if we feel that sense of depletion, so too does the rest of the created order feel the same if it doesn't express it in the same way we do, 
right? It expresses it in a variety of different ways. But nevertheless, you can see the signs of that depletion in the created order beyond human beings. And it's because it's all part of one, you know, divinely inspired ecosystem, as it were, that all works together. So, you you know, where you might not find the evidence in, if you happen to have a very pampered life, perhaps, but you don't see the evidence in your own life, you can look out and go, wow, well, you know, what's happening here? And those can be doorways into that that same type of realization. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. I, I think that uh, one of the things that we have to remember is that Sabbath is not just for us. And mm. we, we have someone who brings that concept out. It can be very selfish. Sabbath, in, in its, in, 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 it can extract from it a very selfish notion. I work six days a week. I work really hard. I need a day off. And that is just all about me. Um, but what I also find interesting, especially in the Jewish tradition, is this, uh, this whole notion of Shemitah, which says that mm. every seven years, the earth needs to, to rest, to take a rest. Uh, it's good oh, wow. farming practice. Farmers knew about this years and years and years ago. Uh, but the whole idea uh, that it's it's that the, the world needs to rest from us. It's not just that we need to rest, but we need to realize that we're extra- extracting every single day all the resources available to us in this earth that that we live on. And the earth needs to to rest from us. And I mm. think that's one of the fundamental messages that comes out of the Sabbath story, that we're we're entrusted with an earth that needs caring. It'll give plenty as long as we t- understand what the limits are and we're able to take care of those limits. And the evidence of the benefits of that rest are pretty clear. One of the, one of the things, one of the chapters that you look at in the film, which I d- wasn't aware of, uh, is the a notion of blue laws. And for those who don't know, the blue, blue laws were, you know, essentially a restriction against uh, doing things of commerce generally on Sundays. And they were, you know, they were, they were laws that were on the books in many places and, you know, through the advent of time and modernization and consumerism and a thousand different things, they kind of went away. Although there still are some examples of it today. Your film highlights the example of Paramus, New Jersey, I think is what it is, um, where these blue laws still exist. And people there, even if they're not religious, they love it they, because there's no traffic and you can just chill. And you also know, which is something else the film brings up, which I think is brilliant because it's a thought I've had before, that the, part of what drives this sense of exhaustion and competitiveness is not just you resting, but knowing everyone else is resting because you can take a day off. But if you know you're going to come back to an inbox with 7,000 emails in it, it's hard to relax so, you know, the, 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 the model of Paramus is that everyone knows no one is working on Sunday, and therefore it really does become a moment of rest. I was really surprised by that chapter. Yeah, that's, uh, we, we had to look hard to find it, um, but it was, it was a really interesting, an eye-opening uh, uh, argument that we could raise that here it is, in, despite the fact that the blue laws have basically evaporated over this country. Mm. And it was, I think, in part, there's a little bit, uh, Deacon Charlie, about the, the notion of, you know, where is religion on the television dial? It's kind of out the door right now. But I think also, too, in the uh, 70s and the 80s, when the blue laws were starting to come under attack, it was the, the idea that we need to f- uh, free ourselves of religious oppression. We can't have these things. This is this yeah. is break, breakage of the relationship between religion and state. We have to stop this right now. And, and so we've gone, we've swung that way. And that's been basically the way the commer- commerce won that argument. It said we, we should be free to sell any time, day, day or night, we want to. And so, uh, but what actually is happening is you're seeing pockets of places like Paramus, New Jersey, 
And they're saying, you know, we do as much business in six days a week and we get to take this day of rest. And people like the idea that they know they have a day of rest. And um, uh, I, you know, we just thought that was a really interesting thing to bring out. And it, 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 it really reinforced for me one of the key ideas, which is that a lot of people that we talked to over the course of the making of this film said that some of their original notions of Sabbath were, was all about don't do, you can't mm. do this. Laws, mm. regulations, rules. How should we think about this? You know, how should we govern this? How should we manage this? And I think what we were trying to say in the film is we've gone through all the making of the laws and then deciding, oh, we can't be legalistic about this. We have to think about this differently. And what we were really trying to get at with the film is the spirit of Sabbath, a totally yeah. different. We we don't get into what are all the regulations in Jude, Judaism. What you know, the idea that um, we we reference it, but we say, you know, in Catholic tradition, if you don't go to church on Sunday, that's a mortal sin. Mm. It's a pretty heavy load to, mm-hmm. you know, somebody. We don't mm-hmm. talk a lot about the legalistic side of it, which is which is part of that story. But our focus is really on what can this, what can the potential be for the spirit of Sabbath, and would that be a good thing for both humanity and the world itself? And that was really the storyline we wanted to get to. We're not calling for the reinstatement of blue laws. But what we're basically saying is that, you know, why don't we on our own decide our day of rest, we're going to hold to it. We'll put down mm. the phones, we'll put down the commerce, we'll relax, we'll take our day of rest. Whether or not the laws are in place to force that, that's not the question. The spirit is with us. Mm. There's other examples, too, um, about how that day of rest can actually be fruitful from an economic standpoint. You mentioned in the Paramus example, that they do more business in six days than, than they could otherwise. Uh, Chick-fil-A, as a very sort of down-to-the-ground example, um, you know, the chicken cha- chain that is closed on Sunday, they do $13 billion in chicken sales every year, and they are a country mile ahead of the number two on that list, even though they've got 15% roughly less time to actually sell that chicken. So there are examples of that. But well, the, I, I'm just going to follow ahead. up and say uh, that's a really good point because we pursued, a, you know, what you don't know is what we tried to get into the film and couldn't. Mm. Some of that is because of the pandemic. But one of the storylines we were pursuing, we know about Chick-fil-A. Uh, and uh, we had several contact, uh, uh, conversations with upper management and they decided not to allow us to include them in the profile. Uh, and the basic concern was that, you know, it, they do it pretty much out of a religious belief. And they were a little anxious about having that out there. Mm. Uh, they closed the door on Sundays. I, we respected that. We thought that was a high-profile company that was honoring their own version of a blue law. Uh, but they would prefer not to have been profiled. And so there's there's no story about Chick-fil-A or about um, about B&H. You know, B&H is, you, you're, a, you're in the technology and the communications business. B&H, would you not say, is one of the leading retailers for uh, equipment in the media, television, film, broadcast, podcast. Sure. I mean, they are the guys. Uh, They're Orthodox Jews. They Mm. close that on sunset Friday until sunset Saturday. That shop is closed. You can't even go online and order your microphones or your lights or your televisions or whatever. Uh, And we invited them. In fact, we know their lawyer. Uh, Their lawyer is a friend of mine. And they said, you know, we thought about this. We we just don't want to go down that path. We just don't want to highlight this uh, people know, by and large, that we closed the shop because of Orthodox Shabbat for us is, is we adhere to that. 
Uh, but we don't want to be mixed up in the story about that. So isn't that yeah. interesting? It's very interesting to me. I mean, because it is a it is an open secret on both of those examples, if 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 it's a secret at all, frankly. Um, and and the and again, the benefit the the evidence of the fruit is very clear in both examples. But we're also in an environment, Martin, where um, you know the obvious is no longer rationale. <laughs> you know, so uh, so it's 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 kind of a crazy world from a PR and media relations standpoint. So nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, but I think that that you know I think it would have been to their benefit. It certainly, it, it might have been interesting to you know to have the inclusion in, in the film. I, I think though. You know the 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 idea that you introduced there, which which I know I think in the film Bishop Barron touches on this a little bit as well, is this idea of not just what is removed during the Sabbath, the things that we abstain, the the the, the things that we omit, but also what we receive, what we give, because principally that is God's um, desire in instituting it to begin with, and we saw the evidence of that in the work of Jesus Himself. You know the giving during that period of time, the reception uh, of of you know God's grace in those those moments, the replenishment, the rejuvenation, the rest. I mean, these are all things that are gifts to us. It's sort of for our own good. You know, you kind of think of the image of the little kid who's sick in bed, and mom is just trying to give him that medicine because it's going to help you. But it comes across as like, well, I'm giving up something that tastes good, so no. In, it's a similar kind of dynamic. Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point. I think that if you only think in terms, again, of Sabbath as those things that you should be pulling out of and pulling away from, you miss half the purpose of the notion mm. of Sabbath that I think God has a gift in store, uh, a, a moment in our lives when we can actually stop and regroup and not only pull away from, but the purpose of the pulling away from is, is to say, now I'm reconnecting to my family, I'm reconnecting to God, I'm reconnecting to the world, the natural world that's around us. And, and I think that's, that's, all to, that's all part of the same notion of Sabbath. It's all, it's all woven together. You can't pull one part without the other part. So yes, we've had, we've had a lot more, possibly a lot more um, emphasis on the laws, the legalistic side of Sabbath in the past. I think it's a good and healthy thing now for us as mature, intelligent people living in the world with plenty of experience to say, no, this is now time not just to pull out, but also to invest in, to be present to, to be open to. That's, mm. that's really what I think Sabbath calls us for. What's your prognosis for the kind of related to Sabbath, but maybe not exclusively, just the idea of uh, faith stories, stories of religion, stories of the transcendent, as we move forward, because, you know, we've t touched on a little bit of technology and I know that I guess your wife is the expert. Maybe we should ask her, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but I think about, uh, technology is by and large, when we think of social media, the internet, that kind of thing has been, uh, perhaps an obstacle to some of that Sabbath moment of rest, principally because of its distraction capability. It can sort of lead us down a primrose path and we can get lost. And next thing you know, we just blew the whole day doing something dumb. Where we're now entering the world with AI and everything is that technology now becomes a, you know, a, I don't know what the right word is, you know, a crutch and a, an enabler, an assistant, a, uh, a counterpart, a companion. So there's like another phase that we're beginning to enter now with the advent of AI. How, how do you, where do you think we go relative to these kinds of conversations in that world? 
Well, AI, artificial intelligence, I think, has taken everybody by storm in these last few years, and it's going to continue to impact our lives exponentially. And one of the ways that it's going to do that is that I think it's going to blur the lines between what's believable and what's not. Mm. And I think there's a fundamental call, I think, that people have in, in, in our, just in our human relationships with each other to, to try and understand what it is we can trust and what can we believe in. Um, we don't trust government. We don't trust the media. We just don't trust anymore. And that's one of the aspects of the whole Sabbath story I've been trying to emphasize, which is to say that, uh, yes, the technology is going to get ahead. It's going to get ahead of us. It's going to get ahead of our laws. Uh, there's going to be crimes committed with the use of artificial intelligence that we hadn't even imagined yet. Um, mm. and, but here they come. Um, and ultimately, what I think the, the role in some ways, in, not just in an abstract way, but in a literal way, Sabbath calls us to trust. It, mm. if, you, if you think of, uh, of trust as, a, as an emotional muscle that needs to be exercised and trusted, then I think, I think our whole notion of who can we trust, we, we have to learn to trust each other in terms of Sabbath language and trust of who we are, that the other person is not going to be running ahead of me and taking advantage of the fact that I'm taking my day off and the real estate agent, is, this other real estate agent in my company is going to run ahead and sell that property while I'm taking my day off. What a fool I am. Uh, we also we want to believe that God can take care of this world while I step away from it for 24 hours. Mm. That's a fundamental trust notion. Uh, we have yeah. this sense of control and command of everything. Uh, and I think what Sabbath does is say, you know, the earth will actually benefit if you give it a break and give it back to the creator himself to take, take control of it for at least 24 hours. You can get back in the saddle again after that. But I, I think AI and the technologies and everything, they're going to reinforce what it is we're already behaving like. Mm. The criminal element will use it for criminal reasons. The people who are trying to do good works will try to figure out ways to do it for good works. It's just a technology. It's one new technology. Same thing with the, with the creation of the printing, uh, printing press you know, 700 years ago. So here comes the technology. It was used both to print the Bible, and then there were people printing and publishing terrible things. So it just is a reflection of our human behavior. Uh, it'll amplify that for certain. It'll make it more available for certain. Uh, but I think one of the things that we have to do is realize that we're in a trust chasm right now. We've lost yeah. trust in so much. And Sabbath is one of the ways, I think, that we can reinvigorate the notion of trust and feel as though we can be aligned again with one of the better sides of as as, as Lincoln would have said, better, better angels of our spirits. Mm, yeah. And if you're crazy like me with these new technologies, you'll uh, see it as an opportunity to evangelize. I've actually sat down and tried to evangelize uh, ChatGPT, not the initial product because that one was a little bit wonky, but uh, the, the new pro, um, the pro program, because if the, you know, if this, thing is learning and it is by every interaction it's it's getting you know smarter it's getting a broader body of of not just data but also context and understanding what people mean and that kind of stuff and if the future does include something like true general artificial intelligence which it seems that we're actually headed in that direction then why not start to evangelize it now, Martin? Because <laughs> uh, you know we may need to do that. So I've actually had long you know discussions with uh, with ChatGPT about faith, you know, and, and I've asked it just simple questions, you know, why repeatedly, after, you know, you ask it any question about the supernatural, it'll give you an answer and then it'll, it'll disclaim it. But a lot of people think differently or something like that. 
And, you know, if you just ask it why enough times, it kind of, it, it kind of puts itself into a little bit of a corner. And I've introduced ideas, even had it say to me, well, that's an interesting way to think about it. You know, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> so who knows what benefit this is going to have, my friend, but I'll take my chances because uh, this thing is going pretty fast. It is going fast. It's going to have a huge impact. It's going to be out of control. The horses are already out of the stable. It's already time to start to react to what's going to be changing and how the, how the world is going to change as a result of it. But I think it's going to, mm. ultimately, it's going to reflect how humanity decides to program it and think about it and prepare it. And so those, I'm, I'm encouraging my wife to sort of stay in that game too, to get it, because she does enjoy the technology. She teaches it at a number of different universities. I think AI is here to stay. Uh, and we, mm. we might as well share what we believe are the important ways to govern and use it for good purposes, rather, because there'll be plenty of people who use it for ill. Well, and I think that the way you present Sabbath can definitely be a key and a way into that discussion in a way that could be relevant to a lot of people um, where past modalities perhaps would not be given you know, the reality of what people are experience today. I, I really do think that that could be that could be the case. Um, Martin, before we get to our final segment, Wait What?, which I know you are breathlessly looking forward Wait, to. Wait, what? I prepared some very, <laughs> yeah, you're prepared some this. Very, I'm waiting to hear what's going to be. Uh, so am I. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But before we get to that, um, I'm going to ask you a question that I think is tough for people like you, people who are in the filmmaking business, because they never want to you know, over-promise, under-deliver, that kind of thing. But I'd like for you to share with the audience ways that they can, first of all, keep, in, you know, keep track of what you and Journey Films and the projects that you already have done. We'll include show notes and all that, um, uh, you know, links to the, in the show notes for that. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And then if there is, um, you know, creative musings, uh, areas, directions, thoughts on what may be next for you, uh, if you feel comfortable to talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll do something I generally don't do, but I'll, you know, I, I'm going to guess you probably have a really reasonable, smart audience, Deacon Charlie. So I'm going to, I'll the give smartest. you the, the smartest, smartest audience out there in television and podcast land. So uh, I'll give you my direct email. My direct email is martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, at journeyfilms.com. And sometimes, to be honest, the, some of the better ideas come to us just by people who call me up and send me an email or some other kind of thing. I think, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Great idea. So, uh, but every, every, every film that we do and uh, has to take lots of time for maturation and team building and everything. And so mm. we're, we're also beginning now a process of looking at where is Christianity going in, as we start to get deeper and deeper into the 21st century. All the data mm. looks challenging. That's the mm. easiest, that's the kindest way to say it. The numbers of people who are moving away from churches, the number of people who are not identifying themselves religiously affiliated, the growth, as you know, of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those people who would say, you know, I may be spiritual, but I'm not, I don't want to identify or affiliate with one particular religion. Well, what does this mean for Christianity as we get deeper into the 21st century? So we're, we're looking at how we might be able to contribute to that conversation with a good film. So that's kind of on the on the horizons right now, but my my most immediate challenge is to make sure that as many people are aware of the film on Sabbath as possible and get the word out about that film. Amen to that. Well, you know, count us in this audience among the efforts to do just that. And uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, it's you know it was a privilege to be involved with the project, and it'll be a continuing privilege for me to help amplify. Uh, everything about this work um, with, uh, you know, with people who I believe can benefit from it. And frankly, when you're talking about a subject as 
important and powerful as the Sabbath, that pretty much everybody. So uh, I'll do everything that I can uh, to get that to happen, Martin. Um, but uh, yeah, but a real privilege to uh, to be part of the project and to uh, and to have you on the show. So thank you for sharing with us your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure for me. I get out to Southern California a couple times a year, and I certainly would love to go out and share a meal and talk a little bit more about all these things that we raise as issues in this conversation. So I look forward to that. Amen to that, brother. All right, Martin, are you ready to play Wait What? 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 Wait What? Ex- you're, I'll take that as a yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. So, so here goes. Question number one. Among the many people you've had the privilege to meet and interview, Martin, there's been a number of giants of faith, as we've discussed a little bit on this show, even converts to faith. This particular one, although not a Catholic, was once noted by his college professors as having a touch of Roman fever for exhibiting signs of subscribing to the beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church. Who was he? I, I, I can't wait to hear who this is. I can't imagine. A European figure? No. Mm-hmm. Not, a, well, you know, certainly known and, and connected to Europe, but not uh, not principally understood as a European figure. Oh, I, I can't, I, 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 I haven't got an answer. I can give you... Do you want hints, or do you want me to just tell you? No, just tell me. Go ahead and tell me. I can't wait. Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Ah. His final college report praised his exceptional skills and intelligence, but also noted that he, quote, seemed to be suffering from a touch of Roman fever. The report com- recommended that, quote, perhaps his bishop might do well to question him about that before ordination. The apparent affliction of, quote, Roman fever insinuated that Tutu was exhibiting signs, as I've already mentioned, of the beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church. He, of course, never converted, but, you know, but became an incredible figure in the Anglican community and all throughout the world. And and obviously you have firsthand experience with him. But, yeah, I didn't know that about them, about, about the man. Yes, and, and we included him in our film on Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he was deeply moved by the example of Bonhoeffer in the 1930s and 40s in his resistance to Adolf Hitler and... Desmond Tutu applied all of that to what he was doing with apartheid in South Africa. So that's that's how mm. he and I cross paths. But I did not know that, so thank you. I carry that now as a new new piece of information because of you. Thank you. Apparently, when he was appointed uh, Secretary General of the South African Council of Churches, I guess in the late 70s, he also introduced uh, a number of things. His daily prayer routine, which was one of his most disciplined devotions, included the Eucharist, the Angelus at noon, and he even completed the Angelus with a Hail Mary. So very interesting, you know, things that maybe in some of the Anglican communities still happen, but the, I would say that they're by and large a bit more rare. Okay, very good. Wait, Question number... Wait, what? Question number two, Martin. This one, this one will be interesting. Maybe a little closer to home. Martin, which of the following is false? Which of the following is false? about your hometown of Queens, New York, where you were born. Is it A, if Queens were to secede from New York, it would be the fourth largest city in the U.S.? Is it B, the world's first road made specifically for cars was paved in Queens? Or is it C, the world's most famous magician, Harry Houdini, was born and is buried in Queens? Which of those is False. Uh, that's tough. I'm going to go with B, the first road. The first road. That's actually correct. It <laughs> happened. In, it is true. Back in 1908, 
When cars were still a novelty, apparently, uh, the Long Island Motor Parkway in Hollis Hills, Queens, opened to traffic. So that one's correct. The correct answer is C. The world's most famous magician, Harry Houdini, was in fact not born in Queens, although I found out he actually is buried there. He was born in New Jersey or, or Italy originally, but, you know, was uh, has a museum in New Jersey, buried in Queens, but uh, but not born there. So there you go. And the other one was also true. The um, If Queens were to secede from New York, there's 2.3 million people in Queens. Yeah. It's a huge number of people. So that's that's uh, just a, it's a hair's breadth shy of Chicago, in fact. So it's a huge, huge yeah. borough. And I actually left right. when I was seven years old. So, I you know, I, well, I can't... Uh... I can't, you can't, I can't claim a lot of uh, can't, uh, intricate write, knowledge. I can't necessarily do really well in a bar with uh, Queen's trivia. <laughs> okay. Well, the final one you're guaranteed to get right, my friend. Okay. Because uh -huh. this is just your answer to this question. So final question, Martin. You get to travel back to any point in history to interview any seminal personage from one of the faith traditions that the world has given us. The only catch is that in order to travel back in time, you must agree that this exclusive will be the final film you ever produce. Do you do it? And if so, which personage, excluding Jesus of Nazareth, would you interview? No, so do you I, do I it, and who would you interview? Yeah, no, that's, that's actually an easy one. I hate the idea that this would be the last one, but I would go back to uh, Augustine. I think I would go back to Augustine in a heartbeat uh, and uh, and just... Just if I could bring back all the the understanding that I have of the current chaos that we live in, and bring that into what was happening for him, uh, and in his time, uh, uh, I think that would be the adventure of a lifetime. Wow! So that would be your final film, then Augustine of Hippo. You're going to shoot this in North Africa in the fourth century, sometime. Actually, interesting follow-up. Would you want to talk to him before? the conversion or after the conversion? In other words, like get to see the, the, the sort of makings of the great man or, or, you know, towards the end. Um, oh, uh, well, I think I'd probably do it towards the end. So we had a good, yeah. good opportunity to sort of resonate with what brought you here. What have you learned? Mm. Uh, what do you regret? And, uh, you know, with technology now, and we talked about this a lot, you could actually shoot that film any place. What you really need is Augustine. That's the most That's important true. Point. That's true. That's a good point. That's a very good point. No, that would be a wild documentary. I'd pay to see that. And I wouldn't have to if it's on PBS. There you go. Yeah, so if you brought it to PBS, <laughs> it would be free for the public, everybody. What a great what a great concept, public television. That's true. We need to keep that one going. Martin, what a great privilege to have you on the show, my friend. Thank you so much uh, you. for being part of this. Um, you know, continued blessings and prosperity on all of the work that you do. The power of story cannot be understated. We need more of it, and we need more of it specifically in the area that you've chosen to dedicate your work and your life to. So thank you very much. Bless you. Thank you so much, Deacon Charlie. It's been an honor for me to be with you. If you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to follow the show, to subscribe, to share this episode, maybe with a filmmaker, aspiring filmmaker, aspiring storyteller, somebody in the world of media, distribution, etc. There's a lot of gems in here. And we hope to see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.